This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.32, The Man from Jupiter, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and like Giran, I too fiddle with pens during meetings. <laughs> it's true, he's a notorious fiddler. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob whose intuition is just a bit better than average. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 71 patrons. A big thank you to you all, including our newest patrons, Pan S, Hillary F, Gon, CDY, and Mark K. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our bonus content, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. This episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown is going to be published on April 6th, 2019. Tomorrow, Sunday, April 7th, will be 40 years to the day since the very first episode of Mobile Suit Gundam aired on Nagoya Broadcasting Network. Tanjobi omedeto, Gandamu. Happy birthday. We are in the final stretch now, covering episode 39 today out of a total of 43 episodes. Next week, we will have a dual episode to cover episodes 40 and 41, and the week after, in episode 1.34, we will cover the last two episodes of Gundam. We'll finish during the anniversary month, even if we weren't able to finish in time for the anniversary day. And we hope that you're as excited as we are both to celebrate the anniversary, bring First Gundam to its conclusion, and look forward to the future of the Universal Century. We're all very eager to get to Zeta, but before that, we're going to cover the first three Gundam compilation movies. Besides us, your loyal hosts, we are also going to bring in some guests who have not watched the first Gundam series, and they'll be able to help us assess whether or not the movies stand up on their own. And of course, we'll also discuss what was changed between the two versions and which ones we think are better. We also have a few loose ends that we want to tie up, so we're going to stick with First Gundam for a couple more episodes and look at it as a complete work rather than episode by episode. We have some research projects that we've long wanted to do but didn't quite fit with any of the episodes, and we're also going to talk about the six-year gap between First Gundam and Zeta. What happened, what changed, and what do you need to know? Then, at last, Zeta. Some of those wrapping up episodes for First Gundam will bleed into our lead up to Zeta, where we attempt to provide some good background on Japan of the 1980s, among other things. Japan in 1985 was very different from Japan in 1979. For those of you who have not been watching along with the podcast and will be starting with Zeta Gundam, we will have an episode that will just cover everything you need to know going into Zeta. Last week, Amuro and Shar fought to a draw in the ruined Texas colony, while the White Base and a newly arrived battleship commanded by Commandant Joaquin made quick work of the remnants of McVeigh's squadron. 
While searching for the immobilized Gundam inside the colony, Sela was briefly and unexpectedly reunited with her older brother, Shar Aznable. The siblings are the heirs to the philosophical foundation of Zeon, but each one's path dismays the other. Shar orders Sela to leave the war, then disappears. His Zanzibar encounters Joaquin's Magellan just outside the colony, and by the time the White Base has retrieved the Gundam, Shar has destroyed the Federation battleship, killing all aboard. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Episode 39, The New Type, Sharia Bol, or New Taipu, Sharia Budu. And now, the recap. Space Fortress Solomon has been taken by the Federation and is serving as a new forward base in the war with Xeon. They await reinforcements for the final push, and Xeon's defeat seems imminent. But one day, they suddenly come under attack. Laser blasts come from nowhere and from every direction. In the command center, the comms officer hears something odd. He says it sounds like, La La. Far in the distance, so far she cannot even see her targets, Lala sits in the Elmeth, controlling the bits as they attack Solomon. Shar is impressed. The Elmeth and Lala are operating beyond his expectations. As the white base approaches, Bright sees the blasts, but no sign of the enemy. Mirai feels as though something is calling to them. The crew are ordered to level 1 battle stations, and a stiff but mostly healed Hayato joins them. Bright checks on Sela, worried about her after her encounter with Shar, and concerned that she is trying to shoulder her troubles alone. Sela, taking off in the G-Fighter, thinks that Bright no longer trusts her now that he knows her origins. A quick spark across Sela's faceplate, just before one of the bits destroys another ship, tells us what we have long suspected. Sela is also a new type. Amuro, trying to find the source of the attacks, feels it calling to him. Energy crackles across his eyes. In his mind, space goes red, and far in the distance, Lala is a glaring light. In a sudden flash, sparkling, colorful lights begin to flow past him until Lala appears, her form seeming to melt and fill his field of vision. Having pinpointed her location, he jets off to catch her. Lala stops her attack, momentarily shaken. From the effort of controlling the bits or a reaction to Amuro's own abilities, we cannot know. Shar insists that she rest now, having already accomplished more than they anticipated. By the time Amuro reaches their former location, they are long gone. On Xeon, Girinzabi meets with Lieutenant Shalia Bull, a veteran of the Xeon army who has recently returned from a mission to Jupiter. Girin informs Shalia that he is a new type. Shalia doesn't quite believe it, insisting he just has above-average intuition. But Xeon scientists have been studying Shalia in secret. Girin sends Shalia to join Kaecilia's forces, and as he leaves, asks him to reflect on why he's been given these orders. It would seem that Shalia has become another pawn in the power struggle between the Zabi siblings. When he reaches Kaecilia's forces, Shalia is given the Brabro to pilot. He meets Shar and Lala, and can immediately sense a power coming from Lala. Shar and Shalia feel each other out, attempting to ascertain the other's motives, all under the mask of a very friendly conversation. Back on the white base, Sela finally comes clean to Bright, telling him about her past and her brother, his plans, and his disgraceful perversion of her father's ideals. Sela decides to stay on the white base and continue to fight. Bright thinks she has chosen a difficult path but admires her strength, and promises to treat her the same as he always has. The Federation forces detect an incoming Xeon ship and send the white base to intercept. It is Shalia Bull in the Brabro. 
The long, extendable arms of the Bravo allow it to attack from several directions at once, and Amuro struggles to dodge as the Gundam's reactions are too slow. Hayato, Sela, and Kai attempt to provide support, but Amuro warns them away. Before they can retreat, Hayato is almost hit and the legs of the gun cannon are shot clean off. Focusing and using his new type abilities, Amuro is finally able to locate the control part of the Bravro. Shalia can sense this, but they do not retreat in time to avoid being destroyed by a perfectly targeted strike from the Gundam. After the battle, it is clear that the Gundam can no longer keep up with Amuro's constantly improving abilities. What will the Federation and the White Base do now that their most advanced weapon is already obsolete? This is a really good episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is our discussion of episode 39, the new type, Sharia Bull. And yeah, this is a really good episode. I would say if you have been listening to the podcast, but you have not been watching the show, this is the episode to watch, both because it's a really good episode. It's really visually interesting and really well done visually. I think it also is really emblematic of where Gundam is going. Interesting. Yes. The episode is named for Shalia Bull, who obviously is very important throughout the episode, but dies by the end. We only get him for a single episode. And yet, clearly, they thought he was important enough to introduce him, have him do a bunch of things, and then get killed off here. And other characters who have been introduced and then killed off usually don't get episodes named after them. We did not, in fact, get an episode named Double Agent Judoc or Kindly Lieutenant The Woody Story. So the show not only treats him as important within the episode itself, but they want us going into the episode focused on him. And most of our analysis of this episode is going to focus in on him. But we wanted to start by talking about one of the other major parts of the episode, which is that this is the most information we've gotten about new types so far. Especially if you combine it with last episode when we got the first real explanation of Zeon's relationship with new types, Shar and Sela's relationships with new types, and the idea of a distinct pre-existing new type ideology that they are all connected to and operating in the shadow of this Zeon ideology created by Zeon Daekun, Shar and Sela's father. It's one of the first show exposition dumps. <laughs> I've noticed this about Gundam and appreciate it. There's very little of that in the show, and it tends to be confined to the narrator in intro and outro segments, they don't make the characters just like have a big expository <laughs> moment that makes no sense. Yeah. Although the downside of that is that we occasionally get scenes like we have in this episode where Sela says something like, Shar has perverted my father's ideology and the audience is left to wonder, okay, wait, hold on. What is your father's ideology and how has Shar perverted it? I was going to get to that later. <laughs> it's true. It means that there are times, and I think this is especially evident in the more political scenes and messages of this episode, mm -hmm. where things are so oblique mm -hmm. that we really are left to interpret things as an audience. It's not clear. It's not obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of room for reasonable people to interpret some of these scenes very differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the political scenes in this episode are 
pretty opaque. There is clearly a lot going on, and it doesn't have the feeling of nonsense for the sake of complicated nonsense. It feels like there are undercurrents that the writers understand, have thought about a lot, and are expressing in very difficult-to-parse ways. Subtle. Perhaps too subtle. (laughs) Too subtle, yes, if we assume that we are supposed to know what's going on. But if the idea is to leave us feeling a little bit confused and a little bit uncertain, then, well, they've accomplished their goal. This episode further confirms for us that Sela and Mirai are new types. Yeah. We see Sela get the little eye sparkle, the little <laughs> flash. Yep. Can't Which is, I would say that's conclusive proof. When we first started seeing the flash with Amuro, we didn't know what that meant. Mm. Now I think we have enough evidence to conclude that anybody who gets that flash is a new type. My evidence on the Mirai side is that she describes the sensation of Lala operating the Elmeth in the exact same way that Amuro does. Mm -hmm. Something is calling to us. Yeah. And we've had evidence about Mirai before, as we've talked about in the past. She had that feeling that Amuro was fine, and she had those premonitions about Lieutenant Matilda and Lieutenant Slager. So as Nina said in the last episode, three is a pattern. What's four? (laughs) Confirmation. (laughs) The other evidence for Mirai being a new type, and I think this is really interesting, there's that conversation between Shar and Shalia that ends with Shar saying, the Federation has already deployed new types in combat, and then it cuts directly to Mirai in one scene and then Amuro in another. And these are both very brief scenes. They're not connected to anything else that's happening. And as soon as it's shown us Mirai and Amuro, it cuts back to the Xeon side. That's clever. I hadn't, I did notice that quick cut and was wondering perhaps what that was about. Of course, that leads into a separate (laughs) point. Uh, This is not really related to new types in action, but so much of what Hayato does in this episode made me think he was doomed. I really thought Hayato was going to die in this episode. Yeah, when Slager gave Mirai his ring many episodes ago, I called that a death flag. And Hayato is just holding up a death flag in each hand and waving them about vigorously. He's all full of pep. He's feeling better. He's almost completely recovered, but not actually completely. And he's going to go out there and make up for lost time. He's going to show them how good he is. Ooh, Hayato. And, and the scene where we cut to Mirai is Mirai comes upon, I think, Fra, Hayato, and the orphans. And like, oh, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And every time <laughs> I see Mirai interact with somebody now, I'm like, oh, are they the next to die? Is Mirai like one of those cats that goes to sleep on the beds of people who are about to die? Well, and then Hayato is the first one to come upon Amuro when Amuro is fighting the Brabro, and Amuro is warning him away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many moments like that throughout this episode that seem to point to Hayato's death. <laughs> and then he doesn't die, so. Yet. Uh, but speaking of that feeling Mirai gets where she says she's being called to. Mm -hmm. One of the fascinating parts of this episode is that even non-new types hear Lala. Yeah. I don't personally think the creepy music in that first scene at Solomon actually sounds like it's saying Lala. I think it's just like, ah, ah, like, (laughs) it's like, ah, but in a creepy way. But one of the comms people in Solomon, one of the Federation officers, says, I can hear something. It sounds like la la. Yeah. Before numerous outposts and ships and so on are destroyed by the bits. Mm-hmm. 
Which brings us to what appears so far to be the fundamental difference between Xeon's use of new types and the Federation's use of new types, which is that Xeon's use of new types seems highly augmented by technology. Yes. And Xeon's use of new types is very projected. It's about amplifying and broadcasting and expanding the new type awareness, whereas for the Federation, it's very much receptive. It's about feelings and sensations and perceptions. I agree that that's what we seem to be noticing from new types who are in the Federation, but there's no indication whatsoever that Federation Command or R&D... <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that this is a, a conscious effort by the Federation, only that these are the ways the two sides are being shown in the show. Right. I mean more on the political level. The Federation knows they exist. They're clearly doing some experiments, but right now they're just sort of letting everything develop in situ, like, mm -hmm. let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. On the Xeon side, we have the Flanagan Institute. We have the Saikomu, which, as we understand, is both monitoring Lala and amplifying her abilities to let her control the bits at range. Despite intense Minovsky particle interference. I was going to say, you know, the whole show is predicated on we have to fight in close because Minovsky particles. And they found a way around that. They've gone back to ranged warfare in a way that we're much more familiar with now. Mm-hmm. Well, not even ranged warfare, drone warfare. And and to some extent, the Brabro also. The main unit is not the unit attacking for the most part. It's the two little extension arms that can go off in any which direction. And mm -hmm. it's, I think it's four arms. Okay. Um, well, however many. Yeah. I, I was only particularly aware of two, but that might just be the way that scene was shot. I don't think the main body has any weapons. It's just those extendy arms. Yeah. And... My first thought when this occurred to me that Xeon has this extension capability is that theoretically this means that Lala will not be traumatized in the way that Amaro hmm. has been traumatized. Hmm. It also means she's much more callous about what she's doing. Mm -hmm. There is no sense of I've killed a bunch of human people because she's not there. She's not seeing them die or mm -hmm. hearing them die. Mm -hmm. It's much more like a video game. Mm-hmm. Which is horrifying in its own way, right? But it also means that she has greater emotional distance from what's happening. She's less likely to be fatigued by it in that mental and emotional sense. Except that the show gives her a technological reason to be fatigued. There's like feedback from the system and it's causing her to become exhausted. Yes. Which Char seems to think is fine. Char seems to think it might actually be better for her to fight in at closer range. Right. I he, think he, he's wrong, but... <laughs> Well, because he orders them to basically turn down the amplitude of the Saikamu so she actually can't fight at the, the long range because the, the feedback is a problem. Right. So she'll have, she'll have better endurance. Mm -hmm. She'll be able to fight longer without becoming fatigued, but she won't have that same range capability. And he's complaining that uh, it's hard to verify that she's actually hit her targets. It's hard to verify the targets at this range anyway. Eh, I think Shar brings his own biases about combat to the table here. <laughs> uh, it's worth pointing out also because of Shar's youth, he's probably never experienced like ranged combat. It may not be a thing he was particularly like trained on, mm -hmm. you know, beyond yeah. beyond the range that we've seen in the battles, you know, missiles and beams being fired from ships, but not at the kind of range that we had the Elmeth attacking here. Yeah. Well, Char just has no interest in that. I mean, even when he's commanding a ship and he's got long range guns, his strategy is get in real close and hit them hard with everything we've got. I did want to point out 
Part of the difference between the Federation's approach and the Xeon approach to new types has to come from the fact Xeon has had a significant head start on the Federation in terms of studying new types. Because remember that the Principality of Xeon was founded in the expectation of new types showing up. The Flanagan Institute probably predates the war by a significant amount. Well, and just the fact that Xeon is based in space. We're pretty sure new types occur because of living in space somehow. Mm -hmm. The Federation is based on Earth and is going to bring those Earth biases. There would have been new types on the sides, but they just would not have been as aware of that. They would not have been as cognizant. They probably would have been much more skeptical when they did start hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And the Federation is positioned just as much more of a status quo sort of organization. They don't have the same incentive to pursue the future ideals of humanity in the way that Xeon does. The other distinction between the Federation and Xeon when it comes to new types is that throughout this whole show, we've had a very clear sense that for the Federation, anyone who is truly exceptional is very inconvenient. Whereas for Xeon, being exceptional makes you valuable, it makes you special, it gets you promoted. Think about the treatment of Char mm -hmm. and how even after everyone is pretty sure it's at least to some degree Char's fault that Garma is dead, Char's incredible skill means that he keeps rising up through the ranks. You know, Dozel demoted him and Kaecilia promoted him again and he's now higher ranked than he ever was before. Versus the Federation, where you have the white base. They're a thorn in everyone's side to yeah. some degree. <laughs> the Federation's strategy with the white base is like, send them off alone into the furthest flung theaters of the war and hope that they at least distract Xeon a little bit. Yeah, this episode might be one of the first times we see any resentment from Bright about that. Mm -hmm. I, he says something like, they make us do everything. And Mirai tries to comfort him. She's like, oh, it means they trust us. And he's like, yeah, trust us to be decoys. Yeah. <laughs> Which we almost never see that kind of attitude from Bright. So we can tell it's starting to wear on him. Mm -hmm. I think he's always been aware of it. I don't think it's a new realization, but it's wearing him down. Yeah. And the, and the amount of work that they're doing, the lack of rest is wearing all of them down. Kai gets that opportunity to inject a little Kai into the episode when he says, they're working us to death. Which is a very Kai line, but also seems pretty true. Yeah, fine. I guess I'll go be a hero. I'm going, but I resent it. Continuing with what you were saying about the Xeon new type technology angle, it's really positioned in this episode as horrifying. That whole opening sequence plays like a horror movie. And then even when they're fighting the bra bro and you have the tentacle guns going everywhere and attacking from every different direction and you have like you have the white base's pilots legitimately scared. Yeah. Especially after the gun cannon gets its legs blown off and they don't know where the attacks are coming from. Like it feels it's meant to induce terror, this new technology taking advantage of the new type abilities. That's absolutely true. And what they do with the music really backs that up. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that Amuro is less frightening. <laughs> no, just we've had scenes where people fighting Amuro are clearly terrified mm -hmm. uh, and where that makes a point of showing us that, Yeah. right? So yeah. it's, it's not just the technology. The technology certainly matters. I think the technology is meant to be horrific because we're looking at weapons of war. We're looking at horrifyingly effective weapons of war. Mm-hmm. But there is, to some degree, also just this othering of new types mm -hmm. and this question of, are new types monsters? Are they human? Are humans monsters? 
Well, Shar brings that up directly at the end of the episode when he says maybe new types are just a pathetic mutation spawned by war. Like maybe new types are not this special thing, this uh, future of humanity. Maybe new types are actually just weapons. The other big new type development in this episode is that we see Amuro using his abilities much more deliberately. Yeah. And they show us this with some really incredible, I think, animation. Mm Mm-hmm. They really use animation to their advantage here to show us Amuro, a certain awareness in Amuro that he has this ability and can use it. And he does this twice in the episode, once when he's pursuing Lala and the Elmeth and once when he's fighting the Brabro. And it's done very differently in each case. Yeah, when he does it for Lala, things go red first and she looks almost like a star or a fire in the distance. Then there's colorful lights. Yeah, there's the scene. It's like he's in a tunnel and there's all of these lights rushing towards him, which is very reminiscent of the Stargate scene at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. I can certainly see the inspiration there. Even a lot of the colors that they use are similar, the sort of pinks and blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say I, that feels like a classic trope of sci-fi now that you're moving so quickly, everything streams past you from this point in the distance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if 2001 was the first film to do that, but it. I see that scene now and I'm like, oh, one of these. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like in every sci-fi now when they go to whatever their hyperspeed is, right? Mm-hmm. That's, you get that those streaming lights. And 2001 does not feature a sequence where Lala melts into the starscape twice. So I had an interpretation of that that only occurred to me the second time we watched that scene. Go on. Basically, we see Lala as a figure, and then the parts of her that are her physical body stay the same shape, but the yellow of her dress like Mm. melts across and fills the entire screen. Mm -hmm. And what Amuro is feeling is what the Saikomu is doing to her mental presence. She is expanding Mm -hmm. to fill Mm -hmm. the entirety of Amuro's field of sensation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's this, as she's sort of melting into this puddle, it's the expansion of her mind. That her presence has extended to where it's almost all Amuro can sense Mm -hmm. (laughs) is Lala. Mm -hmm. And then when he's fighting the Brabro, he closes his eyes and everything goes white. And there are little sparks of, of red. And they're moving around. But he he was able to finally pinpoint where the control part of the Brabro is. Yeah, I refer to that as psychic triangulation. I like it. Because what I think he's doing there is he's not... Because the Brabro, it has all of these extendy, fighty arms. And those are on the end of like cables, right? Mm-hmm. But we know that they're being controlled by Shalia Bull, who is a new type. So we assume they're being controlled psychically through the psychomu or something like it shaliable is controlling all of these different arms and so wherever they go there's a connection between him and them the last bit about amuro i'm not certain of this yet i'll be more certain as we watch the next couple of episodes but i think that as he becomes more experienced as he becomes more comfortable using his abilities we are seeing the little flashes that happen on him change. Mm -hmm. They are not the same little white flash that they were before when he was just reacting, just like having a sense Mm -hmm. and reacting in the moment. I noticed two points. Once, instead of the little like spark flash, it was almost like a line that shot across Mm -hmm. his faceplate. 
And another time it was the little flash, but it was gold mm. instead of white. Like I say, this is only two incidences. <laughs> and because they're not the same, I won't know until we get another couple episodes in whether or not that was on purpose or them mm -hmm. just like trying to change it up. Yeah. But I suspect <laughs> that it has something to do with him gaining control over his abilities. I think so too. And it's when he's actively monitoring, when he's perceiving Lala, trying to figure out where all of these attacks are coming from, that you get that sort of line going across the eyes. Mm -hmm. And to me, it didn't quite look exactly right, but it reminded me of an EKG. Of like an electrical monitoring. A pulse. Yeah. The other thing I want to say about Amuro is you were pointing out how with the Saikomu, with the Elmeth, there's this sense of Lala's consciousness like expanding. And we see that represented through the way she melts in Amuro's vision. Mm -hmm. I think as Amuro's psychic abilities, as his new type abilities are growing stronger and becoming more and more a dominant part of how he interacts with the world... The fact that the Gundam is breaking down represents the increasing irrelevance of his physical body. That's very spiritual. <laughs> and finally, we have Shalia. And Shalia doesn't, doesn't, I think, tell us a lot about new types per se, but there are a couple of points that I think are significant. Uh, one, he is our first evidence that older folks can be new types. <laughs> mm -hmm. Every new type we've met so far has been quite young. Lala and Char might be the oldest, and they are they can't be older than early 20s. Mm -hmm. Haman, if we accept that Haman is a new type, is sure. probably the oldest of them. And Shalia at least looks considerably older, although as we've learned, Gundam can give white hair to 30-year-olds, <laughs> so yeah. who knows? But he's... Shalia is 19. <laughs> he's not actually. Tom is messing with us. Yeah. But he's got white hair and a white mustache. His bearing is, you know, early middle age, perhaps, to my mind. Of course, I thought that about Rambaral too, so... <laughs> Jupiter, it ages a man. And secondly, we see him display an ability that we haven't seen anyone display yet, which is that he can feel the moment that Amro has detected him. The mm -hmm. moment that Amro has pinpointed his position, he knows. He's not able to react in time to do anything about it, but he can feel what Amro is doing, <laughs> basically. And he seems to have, at least to some degree, the ability to maybe sort of kind of read minds. He seems to be trying to at a couple of points throughout the episode. Yeah, this leads really well into... Another big part of the episode, which is what the episode shows us about Xeon politics, mm -hmm. is we first meet Shalia in a scene with Kirin. Yeah, I think I'll just say I think there are four relevant scenes for this in this episode. There's Shalia and Girin. There's Kaecilia and her subordinate. There's Shar and Shalia featuring Lala and Lieutenant Shimas or Simas. And then there's at the end after Shalia is dead, Shar and Lala. I would probably include between Kaecilia's scene and the conversation between Shar, Lala, and Shalia, there's a scene of just Shar and Lala. Mm. Uh, and now that Tom has recapped all of that, we're going to talk about all of these because <laughs> they're very important. Well, they all together tell a pretty complete story about the tragedy of Shalia Bull. When we're introduced to Shalia, he doesn't, or at least he is playing like he does not believe he is a new type. 
He's not in any disbelief that new types exist. He just doesn't think he has one. He's like, oh, I've just got better than average reaction times or intuition or mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, but Zeon's been studying him in secret. <laughs> they have a whole report on him, uh, which again speaks to that scientific infrastructure, right? That they are presumably gathering data on all of their most successful <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, pilots and commanders and fighters for evidence of being a new type. I don't know how long in the Universal Century it takes to get to Jupiter or how long the energy fleet stays there once they get there or how long it takes to get back. But I think we can assume that Shaliable left Xeon long before the war started. Mm -hmm. Shalia seems surprised a little bit that he is being sent to Kaecilia. Well, and Giran says, like, do you know why I'm sending you to serve under Kaecilia? And when Shalia says, no, Gears says, well, I can't tell you, but I hope you'll think about it. And we never get an explicit explanation in the show for why exactly Giran wants Shalia to serve under Kaecilia. I mean, my impression, if I had to form one and make an educated guess, would be that on one hand, he wants to undermine Shar, And on the other, he knows that he and Kaecilia are vying for power against each other. They mm -hmm. are the last remaining Zabi siblings. And we've known from the beginning, Kaecilia holds a lot of power. She has a lot of people on her side and is quite possibly angling for position against her brother, who is currently in power. Yeah, Makve implied that to be the case very early on in the show. So it does seem like there's a power struggle between the two of them. And that's my read on that, too. Right. He wants his man on the inside keeping an eye on Kaecilia. I'm not sure that Giran has any interest in Shar whatsoever. He may. He may. I just don't know that there's any sign of that. And I think this is really about a power play vis-a-vis Kaecilia. He wants somebody who he thinks is going to be loyal to him. Right. Very close to Kaecilia. And ideally, like not just close to Kaecilia, but at the top of her new type of program, which seems to be the most advanced that Xeon has going. We get the impression a few times that the the R&D is largely under Kaecilia's purview, is largely her responsibility. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of the newest and most powerful weapons come out within Kaecilia's part of the fleet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to the very first mobile armor, the Adzam. So that leads to a second interesting question, which is, what is Kaecilia's intention when she assigns him to work with Shar? And she says, if he turns out to be even stronger than Lala, we should give him the Elmeth, make sure Shar is aware of this. It's very possible that my interpretation of Girin also wanting to deal with Shar is because of this scene, because I think Kaecilia is well aware of the threat Shar poses. Mm -hmm. And if the strongest new type in the whole program is very clearly in Shar's pocket, so to speak, like Lala, her hero worship for Shar is hardly hidden. Mm -hmm. The fact that he essentially controls her and that her loyalty is to him and mm -hmm. not to Zeon and not to anyone else is very obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think... This is a state of affairs that Kaecilia is not comfortable with hmm. and would like very much to be able to replace Lala with someone who at least she can be certain is loyal to Zeon. <laughs> Counterpoint. I think it's that Kaecilia is very aware of the threat that Shalia Bol poses to her. I think what Kaecilia is doing here is making sure that Shalia Bol winds up dead sooner rather than later. Because we have noted in the show that one of the most reliable ways for a Zeon soldier to get killed is to serve under Shar. 
And for Kaecilia to say, make sure Char knows, <laughs> make sure Char knows that his pet new type, his little sister might get replaced if this guy turns out to be the real deal. Mm. Like sending comrades out and then letting them die is like Char 101. Well, all I can say to that is this goes back to our point earlier about subtlety. Because <laughs> I think either of these are reasonable reads yeah. <laughs> on that scene. And it's not totally clear which one it is. Then we have the scene with Shar and Lala that you hadn't brought up, but that I thought was important. Because this is another one where it's made really clear to us where Lala's loyalties lie. Mm hmm. She seems unhappy about the fact that Shalia Bull is coming and will be piloting the Brabro. Char asks her about her apparent <laughs> discomfort, and she says, I'm not sure he will have your best interests at heart. <laughs> Which she's worried about Char. She's not worried about Zeon. She's not worried about the war. Mm -hmm. Her concern is for Char and Char's goals. <laughs> Lala's interests are Char and Char-related activities. So we have that before we go into the very complicated scene between <laughs> Shar Lala and Shalia. This is absolutely the most opaque scene in this episode. A lot is passing back and forth between the characters. And I feel most like the audience perspective in this scene is Lieutenant Seamus, who's just standing there like, what are all of these crazy people talking about? And why isn't that woman in uniform? <laughs> You know Char is definitely lying when he says, yes, I've requested one from the Supply Corps. It's so hard to get uniforms. Well, because right now, Lala's not really a Zeon officer, right? She has a rank, but she's Char's private army. Mm -hmm. And he wants to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we get right off the bat, Shalia says he can sense power from Lala, and Char acts impressed. Mm -hmm. And then Shalia says something to Char that I... Don't understand at all. He's like trying to get a read on Char. Well, Char asks him, like, do you sense anything from me? And he says, if you could try to be more broad minded, it would be of great benefit to Zeon. Uh huh. And I guess hearing it now, what I'm wondering is, is he already picking up on Char's like new type supremacy plan? Uh huh. That is ultimately counter to Zeon's interests, right? It's ultimately not about the current state of Zeon as it exists, but some new thing. Mm hmm. Uh, and if anybody wants to quibble with me about Char being a new type supremacist, we have only to jump to Sela talking about how Char has like perverted the ideals of her father and thinks he can bring everything about on his own. Mm -hmm. uh, the ideals of her father being like new types are the future of humanity. Right. So there are only so many bad ways to take that. <laughs> and they pretty much all go to the same place. Yeah. I hadn't had that thought that you just shared, but thinking about it, I think there is an interpretation of what Shalia says later, where he says, I hope for peace for all new types. Mm -hmm. Shalia saying that, if he's getting a read on Shar's new type supremacy ideal, mm -hmm. Shalia saying that is a way of saying, of like being friendly. Right. Shalia is trying to make a good impression on Shar. Right. Which is why Shar then says, oh, I feel like I've just made a new friend. I think he actually says that before Shalia says the bit about new types. Mm. And, and when Shar says... I feel as though I've made a new friend. We get a cut to Lala smiling. Lala mm -hmm. is happy. She's yeah. like, oh, okay, good. We're safe with this guy. Yeah. Um, Even though Char is super lying. 
And and when Shar says, you know, can I take that to mean attaining peace for all humanity? Mm-hmm. That very pointed question. And Shalia says, oh, of course. But you bring up one of the things that makes this scene so confusing and ultimately impossible to parse is that we cannot take anything that anyone says at face value. Yeah. Because even if we could say, okay, Shalia is definitely expressing support for, you know, a, a new type only society or a new type led society. Is he doing that because he's playing the spy and he's trying to get in good with Shar, or is that actually how he personally feels? And there's no way for us to know that because he only gets the one episode. We yeah. don't we don't get to see him. We never get to see Shalia interact with anyone he trusts. Mm-hmm. And Shar makes that comment later on in the episode that Shalia was caught in between a bunch of different powerful forces and was not able to play effectively in that position. And would never have been. Right. Was not the sort of person who was going to be able to operate between Giran and Kaecilia. Yeah. The other possibility in that scene, and what my initial read on it was, is that Shalia's response to Shar's question about, oh, can you sense anything from me? Is Shalia thinks Shar is making fun of him. Mm. And so when Shalia says, I like people like you, but I wish you'd be more broad minded, what he's saying is more like, I wish you'd be more accepting of the powers of new types. Mm. I do like your read better, though, and I'm going to adopt it as my own from now on. <laughs> okay. I do think that Lala interprets that whole conversation as them all being on the same side. And that's why she is then rather angry. <laughs> and the, the closest we've seen her to being angry, I think, particularly at Char, when she finds out that Shalia has been sent out in the Brabro alone. Mm-hmm. And Char has his smooth explanation. Oh, he's just so conscientious. He insisted that he go out and test it alone. And we haven't finished configuring the Elmeth for you. And I won't risk you going out there until <laughs> we've perfectly configured the Elmeth. And she knows he's full of it. Mm-hmm. She doesn't believe any of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think she thought, ah, Shalia is one of us. Shalia is on our side. Oh, wait, but now we're maybe getting Shalia killed? She... There are a lot of moments when we get the sense that she wants to be more privy to Char's plans, right? That she wants him to confide more in her than he does. Mm -hmm. And he tells her very little. I think Char conveys to her the absolute minimum for her to operate effectively. And possibly if he told her more, she could be more effective. But he's a secretive guy. He doesn't really trust her. And, And frankly... For all that he acts affectionate, I think she is a weapon to him, not a little sister. He wants her to feel that affection for him. He wants her dependent, but she's a weapon. I do think for Shar, there is a lot of overlap between the Venn diagram circles of little sister and weapon. There's a there's a nice parallelism between Lala is the sister of Shar's present, right? Mm-hmm. That when he was Kasval, he had Sela, but now as Shar, he's a different sort of person. He can't have that relationship that he had with Sela. So he has this new kind of relationship with Lala. And Sela's got a new big brother. Bright son? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we see Bright is very caring towards Sela and she doesn't trust it. Mm-hmm. She is also very cautious and very secretive and self-contained. And she assumes that because of what he's learned about her, he doesn't trust her. 
we know that that's not the case because we see cutaways to him on the bridge being like, ah, I'm worried about her. I think she's trying to do too much on her own. Mm-hmm. And then when they talk later, you know, he puts a hand on her hand. Like what you're trying to do is very difficult, but I trust you and I rely on you and we're here for you. And most beautiful part of all, I admire your strength. <laughs> you know, whereas this person she's become was too strong for Shar. Bright can look at the person she's become and admire her and support her. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I thought so. I got all emotional (laughs) over it. Well, and it's one of the few times we see Sayla cry. Mm -hmm. In public. It's the only time we've seen her cry when other people are around. And I have to think part of that is her relief at getting to talk to someone and Mm -hmm. not have it all be such a big secret anymore. And to know that Bright's still there for her. Yeah. You know, he's not going to make her leave. He's not going to punish her. Yeah. I thought there was a really beautiful bit of interaction in the body language there in that scene, if you pay close attention. Because as you pointed out, Bright does, he reaches over, he puts his hand on her hand to be reassuring. Mm-hmm. But when he does that, Sayla tenses up and, and he she immediately, pulls away from her. He immediately takes his hand away. And he looks kind of like awkward and yeah. like feels as though he's done something wrong. But then a second later, as the conversation continues, it's Sayla who reaches out to touch his hand. It's very subtle. You see Sayla reaching, and that's the only thing she could be reaching for, but it doesn't actually show you that moment of contact because the subtlety in these interpersonal interactions has been a real hallmark of the way Gundam handles its characters. It's more emotional scenes. Mm-hmm. But I think that that feeling from Sayla of being scared at first, being reluctant, being hesitant, being tense, pulling away, and then reaching out, I think is quite beautiful. And I think it's reflected in her interactions with the gold and her ultimate decision to give the gold to Bright to give to the people of the white base. And I don't, she doesn't say this, but I think the implication is don't tell them it's from me. Yeah. Although she, of course, describes this as selfish on her part, as something that will make her feel better Mm -hmm. about everything. If she doesn't keep it for herself and if she perhaps makes amends a little bit for the deception (laughs) by sharing (laughs) Mm -hmm. what's come of it. And then after the fight, after Shalia Bull has been killed, we have that moment which you talked about where Shar acknowledges that Shalia was caught between these two political factions and would probably not have been able to navigate it. And one wonders how much he believes himself when he says an honorable death was the best thing we could give him. Yeah. This is Shar's version of mercy. Or Maybe. An, or an attempt to salve his own conscience. Or he's just saying it for Lala's benefit. Yeah. And then, so here's an interesting question. Lala asks him, did you see this coming? And he seems to get angry. You know, uh, new types aren't omnipotent. We've seen her ask him about his predictive powers before. Does she think he's just so smart that he can anticipate things happening? Or does she think he's a new type? Tom is making his I cannot confirm or deny face. No, this is, well, yes. Okay, that too. <laughs> also thinking about it, because there's a third possibility, which is that what she's really asking about is moral culpability. Did you send him out knowing that he was going to die? Or did you send him out and then he died? I, I think that's another half of the same thing, because he could either be like so smart that he anticipates all these outcomes and he anticipated it and sent Shalia to die, or he's a new type who catches glimpses of the future <laughs> and sent Shalia to die. And Shar's resentment in his response, his anger in that response, 
I feel like can be read in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Because potentially, I don't think we've seen any signs actually that Shar is a new type. So he could resent the fact that he's not Mm -hmm. and be lashing out by saying, well, new types aren't omnipotent. They're just, you know, mutations created by war. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, as pitiful as any other human. Possible second interpretation he is very angry that Shalia had to die, that this is one more new type at the mercy of this war between these powers, neither of whom are going to further peace, neither of whom are furthering the cause of new types. Mm -hmm. And yet it's another new type sacrificed to this war. Many of the times that Shar has brought up, oh, the other side has new types. I've gotten a sense not just that, and that means we need to be careful because the other side also has this this power, this weapon, this technology that we have, but of like, of him lamenting that new types should have to fight each other when he feels that all the new types should be on the same side. Mm. Yeah, I, I sense that too. And, you know, possible third interpretation of his comment <laughs> on the omnipotence of new types just being that, you know, a sense of wanting her to be cautious that, you know, no matter how well Shar plans, no matter how strong Shaliable was, nobody is always safe. Like war is always dangerous. Nobody can plan for everything. Nobody can prepare for everything. That somehow even even these people that Shar thinks of as the future of humanity and the the ones who should be leading humanity are still at the mercy of war and uncertainty and danger. Possible fourth interpretation. <laughs> Shar's anger here is pure artifice and manipulation. He is saying, how dare you question me? How dare you suggest that I could have known? Clearly, it's impossible for me to know that he was going to die. It was stupid of you even to ask. I do think he lashes out at any appearance of uh, resistance or like obstreperousness <laughs> from Lala. Good word. Look it up. <laughs> um, you were supposed to be my new type. I am. No, you're not. You're disloyal. Uh, like he wants her to follow him blindly. He wants her to accept her orders and do her job and and love him like an older brother. Right, and do precisely what he tells her to do without questioning it or bringing her own feelings into the mix. The only feelings he is interested in are her new type feelings of where the Gundam is. This week, we discuss Jupiter, why would we go there, and how would we do it, helium and its uses, and government experiments in psychic phenomena. Although it never appears, the planet Jupiter plays a prominent role in the background of this episode. Shaliable enters the scene because he was the commander of a fleet carrying vital helium back from Jupiter, and it was while serving as head of that fleet at Jupiter that Shaliable displayed the new type abilities that brought him to Girenzabi's attention. When Shalia is dispatched to serve under Kaecilia, she calls him a man from Jupiter, and she wonders what to think of him. It's an interesting blip in this episode because, unlike Lala or Amaro, Shalia's new type abilities don't really alienate him from other people. They're subtle and they're expressed in mostly socially acceptable enough ways that Shalia himself merely attributes them to ordinary intuition. Throughout the episode, he's presented as a very normal, by-the-book sort of officer. Except there is something about having lived around Jupiter that makes him different from other people in Xeon. 
This is the first time that Jupiter has been mentioned in First Gundam, although it's not actually the first time that the largest planet in our solar system has been mentioned on this podcast. Back in episode 1.17, Unnecessary, our guest Sean discussed Gundam's fictional Antarctic Treaty, the universal century analog for the Geneva Conventions on the Laws of War, as well as a variety of arms control agreements that collectively prohibit the use of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. During that discussion, he also mentioned that among the things that the Antarctic Treaty does is it provides for the neutrality of the Jupiter energy fleet. The reason for this extraordinary neutrality is that all of modern universal century society, Federation, Xeon, and Neutral, relies on the helium-3 isotope extracted from Jupiter's atmosphere to feed the Minovsky-Ionesco reactors that power everything from balls to battleships. Current real-world experiments with nuclear fusion use deuterium and a hydrogen isotope called tritium that, when fused, create a helium atom and a neutron. But free neutrons are obnoxious. They are hard to contain. They cause a bunch of health problems. They degrade material over time, and they will cause whatever they hit, including the machinery of your reactor and the cells of your body, to become radioactive. (laughs) The advantage of helium-3 is that it is a stable isotope with more protons than neutrons. So when you fuse it with deuterium, you get a convenient proton instead of an obnoxious neutron. Helium-3 is, in fact, the only stable isotope of any element that has more protons than neutrons. So it seems like it would be an excellent, low-waste, and zero-radiation fuel for fusion power. But unfortunately, there is vanishingly little of it on Earth. Can you guess where we think there might be a lot of it? Well, the moon, actually. (laughs) Helium-3 is emitted by the sun, but the Earth's atmosphere blocks it from accumulating on Earth. The moon does not have that problem, and so helium-3 has accumulated on the moon in what we think must be considerable quantities, possibly as much as 5 million tons of the stuff in the accessible surface of the moon. Current estimates suggest that it would take about 100 tons of helium-3 to meet all of the world's present energy needs for a year, so if we assume that energy consumption keeps growing at the current estimated rate of around 1.2% a year, the reserves of helium-3 on the moon could power all of humanity for around 1,000 years. Wow. Yeah. There's more helium-3 on Jupiter. After all, Jupiter is more than two and a half times larger than all the other planets in the solar system put together, and a quarter of that mass is helium. But the Jupiter helium is, to put it mildly, somewhat inconvenient to access. Since Jupiter ranges between 365 million and 601 million miles away from the Earth, actual travel distance can be a lot more than that because of the way spacecraft slingshot around heavenly bodies to accelerate without burning any fuel. The Galileo spacecraft, for example, took six years and traveled two and a half billion miles to make it to Jupiter. So why does Gundam's setting rely on a remote helium-3 extraction operation in orbit around Jupiter instead of lunar mines? Well, for one thing, the far-flung helium extraction and transport issue is a neater analog to Japanese oil production during World War II. But for another, we didn't figure out that the moon had so much helium-3 until 1985. In 1972, the United States launched Apollo 17, the last human moon landing, and NASA made a slight change to the crew of astronauts being sent up. For the very first time, they included a scientist. For the first time? Yes. All of the previous astronauts had been pilots first, and then trained in basic science, data collection, things like that, by terrestrially based scientists. Huh. One of those scientists was the astrogeologist Harrison H. Schmidt. In the mid-1960s, he took a year-long crash course in astronauting, which is not a real word, and then he waited. 
He was a backup for the Apollo 15 mission and was scheduled for a spot on Apollo 18, but thanks to a combination of skittishness after the near disaster of Apollo 13, congressional budget cutting after the excitement of going to the moon for the first time turned into the humdrum of going to the moon again, and a changing focus to the new Skylab space station, Apollos 18 through 20 were cancelled. But after a lot of pressure from the scientific community to send up some scientists, NASA decided to bump Joe Engel, an Air Force test pilot and one of the astronauts assigned to Apollo 17, and give the spot to Schmidt instead. Now for me, living in the US in 2019, this is the most unbelievable part of the story. Pressure from the scientific community got the government to do something. <laughs> so Schmidt got to be the first and last human scientist turned astronaut to step foot on the moon. He spent 20 hours collecting samples and studying the moon's geology, but it wasn't until 13 years later, six years after first Gundam, when a team working on fusion power generation at the University of Wisconsin, led by Professor Gerald Kolchinsky, took a serious look at the lunar samples and realized just how much helium-3 was up there. So based on what was known in 1979, Gundam's idea of a Jupiter energy fleet shipping massive amounts of helium-3 back to Earth was right on, actually, and pretty cutting edge. Besides the helium, Jupiter was probably on the Gundam team's minds for another reason. While Jupiter is big and bright enough to be easily observed by the naked eye and so has been studied by every civilization from at least as early as Babylon into the present day, and it's the reason that zodiac systems dating back to the Babylonians usually have 12 signs, it wasn't until the early 1970s that humanity was able to actually send a spacecraft out there to look at the gas giant up close. Between 1972 and 1979, we sent four probes to Jupiter. Pioneers 10 and 11 reached Jupiter in 73 and 74, respectively, and then Voyagers 1 and 2 both reached Jupiter in 1979. After that decade-long courtship, however, humanity ghosted Jupiter, and the next spacecraft, the joint US-European-Canadian probe Ulysses, didn't arrive until 1992. And the reason for both the flurry of missions in the 70s and the big gap is actually really fascinating. You see, a rare astronomical phenomenon occurred in the 1970s. Jupiter orbits the Sun about once every 12 years. Saturn does it in 29 years, Uranus takes about 84 years, and Neptune requires around 163 years. Once every 175 years, and thanks for that Neptune, the orbits of those outer planets line up just right to allow a spacecraft traveling between the planets to use each one's gravity to slingshot it onto the next, saving fuel. Less fuel means a smaller spacecraft, and a smaller spacecraft is a cheaper spacecraft and, oh yeah, NASA budget cuts. So they had a brief opportunity in the 1970s to explore all of the outer planets at a relatively low price, which is why they went all in on missions to Jupiter. A final fun note about those Jupiter missions, Pioneer 10 was a state-of-the-art plutonium-powered spacecraft, the first one to reach Jupiter. It was capable of transmitting data back to Earth at a blistering 256 bits per second. Computations needed by the probe, like navigation, were performed using computers on Earth and then transmitted to the probe, which had onboard memory capable of storing five entire commands at a time. <laughs> It could also collect and store up to six kilobytes of data to transmit back to Earth. Six kilobytes! The mission requirements for this design stated that it needed to be able to operate for at least two years. And the best part about all of this is that an engineer working at the company that built it stated, and I quote, 
This spacecraft is guaranteed for two years of interplanetary flight. If any component fails within that warranty period, just return the spacecraft to our shop and we will repair it for free. When helium got name-dropped in this episode as the reason for a Xeon expedition to Jupiter, Tom thought of oil, and of energy generally. I thought of helium itself. Was this a reference to how we use helium in our own world? How does it connect to World War II? The discovery of helium in natural gas is kind of a funny story. What was thought to be a natural gas well was discovered in the town of Dexter, Kansas. A company bought the drilling rights, started building out the site, capped the well, the town planned a huge celebration, and the party was meant to culminate with them lighting the off-gassing, which is to say uh, producing a huge plume of fire by lighting some of the escaping gases on fire. Only when they went to light it with like a burning haystack, <laughs> what? when they went to light it, nothing happened. In fact, the escaping gases put out the fire that was meant to start the whole thing going. <laughs> Witchcraft. The town was disappointed, but the state geologist was intrigued. <laughs> he captured a few cylinders of the gas from the well and took them back to the University of Kansas for analysis. They found all kinds of non-flammable stuff in there, but the most significant discovery was that the gas in question was almost 2% helium. That may not sound like a lot, but where before helium was considered very rare and extremely difficult to isolate because they were trying to get it out of the atmosphere, it was now readily available in large quantities. At the time, helium was a curiosity. It wasn't until a decade later that it was considered as an alternative to hydrogen for lighter-than-air craft. It has almost the same lifting power as hydrogen without the flammability. <laughs> uh, helium is in fact remarkably inert. No one has ever been able to make it combine with another element to form a compound. Production was too expensive for helium to play a huge role in World War I, but it wasn't long after that that large-scale production made helium much cheaper. It went from $2,500 per cubic foot to $0.03 cents per cubic foot in about 10 years. Wow. Largely thanks to new government-built plants. Thinking about what helium used to cost, I'm just... Flashing back to all of these birthday balloons. Yep. <laughs> uh, it seems impossible to touch on helium in history and lighter-than-aircraft without mentioning the Hindenburg. For anyone who's unfamiliar with the story, the Hindenburg was a class of rigid airship that flew commercial passenger flights for the German Zeppelin company. However, they ceased operation after only 14 months when one of their airships burst into flames while attempting to land in New Jersey. While the exact causes and contributing factors to the accident are uncertain, one of the most widely accepted is that the hydrogen contained in the body of the airship was ignited in some way and quickly caused the whole ship to ignite. So why wasn't it full of the almost as effective but much safer helium? When the U.S. government realized the military applications for helium in lighter-than-air ships, they put in place the Helium Act of 1925. Most of what I could find about this was quite politicized, which made it unclear just what the act did or didn't do. But the result was that the U.S. government controlled almost all helium production and storage and put insurmountable barriers in place for exports. 
1938, a couple years after the Hindenburg disaster, but to give you an idea, if you wanted to export helium, six cabinet secretaries needed to agree that the amount you wanted to export was not of military significance. <laughs> There are similar export restrictions now on things like uranium. I think the attitude was very similar. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, the U.S. was the primary producer of helium in the world by a large margin. We're still responsible for 75% of global helium production because it comes out of our natural gas wells. Mm -hmm. uh, so other countries had to do without, and hydrogen was much cheaper to produce and more readily available. In World War II, helium was used in U.S. blimps, uh, which are different than rigid airships because a blimp is basically a, a balloon that is filled with gas. So it's flat until you fill it with gas versus airships that had a more rigid structure and looked inflated all the time, but then you would fill parts of it with gas. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the U.S. used blimps in World War II for submarine and mine spotting, search and rescue, mine laying, and even cargo hauling but they were most used and most effective as escorts for convoys of ships. They had exceptional range. They were equipped with long-range radar equipment and magnetic anomaly detection equipment, both of which we've talked about previously. Uh, once a sub was detected, they could then drop depth charges on them or simply call in the position to other ships and aircraft. To give you an idea of just how effective they were in this role, of 89,000 ships escorted by airships and convoys, only one ship was lost. How embarrassing for that ship. That one ship. Helium is also used in a number of contemporary applications. When labs need extra cold temperatures for experiments, they often use helium because it can be cooled to very close to absolute zero. It's used to cool the magnets of the Large Hadron Collider, as well as those in MRI machines the first of which was used in 1977, by the oh, way. Neat. It's used to pressurize liquid propellants for space shuttles. It's used in some welding and deep sea diving applications and a ton of other experimental uses. So in addition to the energy usage that Tom talked about, it's also not hard to imagine a lot of other <laughs> necessary applications for helium in future technology, especially given how obsessed a Gundam seems with magnets. <laughs> the Flanagan Institute and Guerin's comments about secretly monitoring Xeon soldiers made me think of nothing so much as the men who stare at goats. <laughs> Uh, which, for anyone who's not familiar, is a nonfiction book that was later turned into a somewhat fictionalized film about the CIA's experiments in psychic phenomena <laughs> uh, that began in the 60s, I believe, or 70s, and didn't end fully until the 90s. They didn't completely defund the program until the 90s. Um, the title is a reference to their attempts to kill goats by staring at them like with their mind. <laughs> <laughs> These projects went under a lot of different names over time, but are now known under the umbrella term of the Stargate Project. It came out of the Cold War. The U.S. government believed the USSR to be spending vast amounts of money on what they termed psychotronic research. And because obviously we couldn't let the commies get ahead of us, <laughs> uh, the CIA started devoting money and resources to looking into uh, potential uses for psychics. 
The main focus of the work, which is a departure from Gundam, <laughs> was on remote viewing. So having a psychic see events, sites, or information that's happening far away. If anybody watches Stranger Things, the experiments in Stranger Things that produce Eleven are clearly a reference to this. They're trying to use her to spy on Soviets. You may already be familiar with the CIA program called MKUltra, which is sort of related but also different from this. MKUltra was more about trying to develop mind control techniques rather than trying to develop techniques using the mind to control the world. And then MKUltra was very drug-focused. They did a lot of experiments with LSD. They also, um, I mean, effectively torture techniques, right? Sleep mm -hmm. deprivation, use of hallucinogens on people, use of hypnosis, isolation, and ab abuse mm -hmm. to augment interrogations. Yeah. Though similarly, it was another case of we heard that the Soviets were doing it, so we had to have our own program. They were also of relevance to the Gundam Connection doing these experiments on U.S. citizens without their knowledge. A bunch of the materials related to the program were destroyed by its director when it became clear he was going to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he just destroyed all the documents. One participant died under shady circumstances that we know of. Uh, it was originally ruled a suicide. There was later speculation that he had been killed because he no longer wanted to participate in the program. Uh, also of relevance, the public first learned about MKUltra in 1975 hmm. uh, when a committee of the U.S. Congress was investigating CIA activities within the United States. Like, oh, we're not giving these guys any oversight, and they are doing a bunch of really shady and illegal things. <laughs> we thought they only did that to foreigners. Yeah. Mm. Something I want to look into more as we move into additional Gundam series and perhaps look at how this affected Japan, but the Stargate project, those projects in sort of human psychic ability were very much based in like new age philosophy and the counterculture and what's called the human potential movement, which was this belief that humans had vast untapped potential and that pursuit of self-improvement and attempts to utilize this potential on an individual level would lead to benefits for all of humanity. That a person could like through their experiences, through becoming more in touch with their abilities or something like that, that they could become a like a new type of person and, yeah. and unlock new types of abilities. And that this would benefit humanity, ultimately. Mm -hmm. See, that sounds exactly like the philosophy of Zion Dekun, at least as reported by Sela and transmitted to her by Jimba Rall. I also think we see a continuation of this even now when we look at all these people who are like, how to hack your brain, how to mm -hmm, hack your body, mm -hmm. how to get like the most out of your body and your brain and expand what your body and your brain can do. Right. This focus on human improvement and self-improvement and maximizing this untapped ability. I have not yet been able to find much research about this kind of thought in Japan. Even without good sources talking about these kinds of ideas in a cross-sectional kind of way, just looking at Japanese media of the last 40 years, 
from Gundam through Akira through to My Hero Academia or any of these modern special people, special powers Mm -hmm. shows, the idea is everywhere. Absolutely. I think it's it clearly informed science fiction around the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) from when it first came to be an idea to now. It was also, and I think this is very relevant given some of the animation we've seen in the past few episodes, influenced by the use of psychedelics and psychedelic culture. There were certainly people who believed that part of unlocking human potential would involve the use of drugs, (laughs) mind-altering substances. I think that one's, I mean, that one's still quite prominent, um, in the real world with the microdosing the, yeah i was going to say with the with the oft reported uh, trends of microdosing among silicon valley tech bro body hackers uh, that's people who try to hack their bodies to make them better uh, microdosing for relevance is taking very tiny amounts of usually lsd in this case such that you do not hallucinate But people say that they experience all kinds of positive benefits from these tiny amounts of LSD that they're consuming on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. And then you see it in movies. I think Lucy uses a a drug-based regimen. Akira has uh, drugs that either helped you unlock or control or both the psychic powers. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it come up in future Gundams. (laughs) We shall see. (laughs) I'm now trying to remember the names of all of these like middle tier to low grade psycho thrillers over the last couple of years that have involved taking drugs to unlock the secret powers of your brain. And they're just so many and they're so bad. And I'm not going to even try. (laughs) So, yeah, if this is the first you're hearing about the U.S. government's experiments into psychic phenomena, you should go watch The Men Who Stare at Goats. It is a legitimately hilarious movie. It's very funny. I'm sure it's not 100% accurate, but it it's just wild to think about the things that our government has attempted and spent money on. <laughs> and I look forward to some more research and analysis on how some of these new religions and new philosophies influenced Gundam going forward. Do you think new types and that sort of new age philosophy are going to keep coming up? Uh, I will be surprised if we come across a Gundam where they don't show up. <laughs> Well, no spoilers. (laughs) As we're saying our final goodbyes to Shalia Bull, I wanted to talk briefly about the role that he plays in Gundam as it exists and the role that he was intended to play in the longer version of the show. Because Shalia Bull, he shows up and he disappears so quickly, but he shows up with so much fanfare, he feels important, even though his presence is, in terms of his actual time in the show, quite brief. And so when I was looking at what I've called in the past the Tomino memo, or the brief outline of notes that would have informed the original plot of the show before a bunch of things had to be changed Uh to accommodate the shorter run length. Mm -hmm. I consulted the Tomino memo looking for more information about Shalia Bull. And to my surprise, this is basically what was intended for him. He was going to show up, he was going to fight the Gundam, and he was going to die all in the course of one episode. However, what we were going to get and ultimately didn't was a whole series of essentially untrained but powerful new types Mm. who had served under Shalia Bull. 
like this person was one of Shalia Bull's subordinates, mm-hmm. was going to be a shorthand for this person is a powerful but untrained new type. And then they were basically just going to get killed one after another okay. throughout the next few episodes of the show. That, of course, didn't end up happening. But I think it's interesting to think about what that would have meant for Gundam and, and what it was meant to show us. From my perspective, I can imagine two things that that might have been meant to show. The first is related to Jupiter, because these are all Shaliable's subordinates from when he was running the Xeon part of the Jupiter energy fleet. So presumably, these are all people who are out there with him around Jupiter. Right. And we have a sense that Jupiter is like a strange place. And when Caecilia is talking about Shaliable as someone who has returned from Jupiter, there's a feeling that there's something strange about the people who have lived out around Jupiter. I suppose I interpreted her comment there as it being very dangerous, that it's that it's almost rare for people to come back alive <laughs> from that journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's some of that. It's also, it's the furthest out human habitation. It's as far from Earth as you can go, as deep into space as you can go, at least in the universal century as it is right now. Mm-hmm. And so these are like, they're like double space noids. They're not just people born in the colonies, but they're people... Who've been to the very fringes of space. Exactly. And so maybe there's a sense that amongst the people out around Jupiter, these new type abilities are even more common, perhaps even commonplace. I could see that, that you have this greater prevalence among a particular subset of the population. Another interpretation, and maybe maybe you were about to say this, I don't know... (laughs) I could see another interpretation being that physical proximity and exposure to a new type using their abilities can either like cause or hone new type abilities in other people. That is the other thing I was going to say. Because <laughs> we've seen that in the show. We saw that Amaro's encounter with Lala really helped him to transition into the next phase of his abilities. It helped him to become awakened. And we've seen on the white base, we're seeing this crew that has all gathered together that has been very close both physically and emotionally for a long time and close to Amaro. And we're very certain that Mirai is a new type. In this episode, for the first time, we saw Sela get the new type Flash. So we're confident that Sela is also a new type. Perhaps there's a feeling that new types either are drawn to other new types or draw out new type abilities in those around them who have the potential. There's only four episodes left. It would be difficult for the show to make that point in the time remaining (laughs) to it. But it's interesting to think about Shalia as serving that purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and we've talking again about the the parallelism in Gundam. Shalia Bull's crew of new types is like a Xeon version of the white base. How how brutal might it have been to watch our white base heroes cutting their way through their Xeon counterparts in the last episodes in the road to the final confrontation? Next time on episode 1.33, No Family, No Homeland, Malthusian Hitler, Uber Types, Unlimited Speed, The Dads They Deserve, Just a Good Old Fashioned New Type, Something About Emotions, Sha, 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 A Tricorn Hat, 
smooches. And something you can never take back. Will you be able to survive? Sha, 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 sha. Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, there's nothing weird about how invested Shar is in what Lala is wearing, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. And that's the train our constant companion. Because it's April, um, the anniversary is coming up quickly, and we have two episodes left after this one. Tomorrow, April 7th, 2019, is the gundam 40 years of Gundam or something like that. You. You're gross. I believe you mean charming. The sounds you make with your body disgust me. <laughs> That's fair. surprised there seems to be a lot of overlap between people who like Gundam and people who like bread <laughs> I knew we should have done bread all along <laughs> everyone likes bread I can't, every culture has bread I can't believe you let me talk you into a Gundam podcast when a breadcast was there all along think of the sponsorships free bread for life <laughs> all the flour I can use yeah, but then there's the inevitable big scandal when we get caught eating pasta. Like a great many people, I grew up having pasta with a side of toast to mop up any remaining pasta sauce, so I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. I bet the bread lobby does. I was going to make a lewd joke there, but I won't do it. No, do it. I won't put it in the podcast. Brabro was at one point supposed to be called the Gelgu. <laughs> Such a good name. Gelgu. <laughs> Gelgu.